All right. Um, well, before we started last week, we went to the pre-tribulation rapture and why that was wrong. Um, well, I was gone for a month, and you guys watched some videos, I think on John 6, Romans 9, Ephesians 1. I didn't ask you guys if you had any questions about those. Does anyone have any questions they remember in their notes that they would like answered and didn't get answered at that time? I know it was a while ago. Yeah, the, uh, didn't we cover open theism? And, uh, can you uh, just... I always have a hard time with this. Certainty, necessity, contingency, thing. Can you just cover that real quick? Sure, okay, so... And, and do me a favor, because I need it simple. <laughs> just try to keep it as simple as you can, so I can try to really get this. Okay. Alright, so open theism says that God does not know the future free will decisions of mankind because the future is not in existence yet, even for God. That's what open theism says. If God, according to open theism, if God did know the future free will decisions of man, they wouldn't be free because God's foreknowledge would have caused it to happen or would have necessitated it to happen. Okay? So that's, the, that's what open theism says. Now, open theism has many proof texts. We're not going to go through those right now. Maybe a different time I'll just do a whole series against that and their proof texts. But um, I don't hold to open theism. I think God does know every future free will decision of man, and yet their decisions are free. God's knowledge of it does not necess- uh, make it necessary, does not cause it to happen. Any more than, say, a prophet in the Old Testament. Many prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about things that are happening in the future. You see Revelation. John is basically prophesying about what's happening in the future. Does the prophesying of that cause those things to happen? No, it does not. Okay? So that, that's what open theism talks about. Now, there's, when it comes to the philosophical side of this, going outside of Scripture now, there's the philosophical side of it. There's three terms you need to know about. One is necessity, one is contingency, and one is certainty. Okay, let me give you the definitions of all three of these. Necessity means something's forcing to happen. An outside force is forcing another thing or being to make this thing do whatever it wants to do. That's necessity here. Okay? Certainty is knowing with factness that something is going to happen. You know, I know that all of us, unless Christ comes back before them, we're all going to die someday. I know that with factness, with certainty. If something in the Bible prophesies about the future, I know it's going to happen with factness, with certainty. Okay? But there's a difference between certainty and necessity. Open theism combines those two things as one. It says if anything is known in the future with certainty, it's happening of necessity. I disagree with that. Okay? Then there's contingency, which basically is another word for free will. Contingency has to do with ifs and, and probabilities and possibilities. This could happen, this could happen. That's what contingency is talking about. So... In open theism and in Calvinism, they both combine certainty and necessity as one, and therefore say, if those two are, things are true about the future, there is no contingency. There is no free will. And see, they, they, they come to that same conclusion, but they go in two different directions. Open theism says God does not know the future free will decisions of man, therefore we have contingency. We have free will. Calvinism says... God does know all future free will decisions, therefore there are no, there's no free will in the first place. Okay? I think the biblical middle, remember, we get all of our theology and we get our logic 
From who? And who wrote down the scriptures? The Holy Spirit, God. So if the Bible declares that men's future decisions are free, and yet he declares they're going to happen with certainty, then both those things can be true at the same time. There is no contradiction because God is the author of logic, and that is logical according to God because the scriptures say these things. Okay? Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say that God knows all future free will decisions of man. It doesn't say that. But it does talk about God knowing some future free will decisions of men. It says that. And if God knows some, he must know all. Because if God knows some future free will decisions of man, he must have the ability at least to know all. And if God knows some but doesn't know all, either he's refusing the information, and it also makes him non-omniscient. Omniscient means all knowledge. Okay? So that's my position on this open theism issue. Um, now, I don't consider open theists heretics. The Calvinists do because it destroys their position. Any, anything that destroys the Calvinist position, they call you a heretic, or a her they, believe, they believe in heresy. Um, most open theists have just about everything else right, from what I can see. And they have this misunderstanding about what's going on here. Now, they don't, open theists won't say that God's not omniscient. They'll say he's omniscient. Because omniscient has to do with knowing everything. And if the future can't be known, God still is all-knowing. He knows everything that can be known. Okay, so if, if I've met, some, met someone who's an open theist or a Calvinist who said that God's not omniscient, then I would declare them a heretic. Because God is omniscient. Okay, so that's, that's how the open theism issue works with the scriptures. And we've talked about that here and there throughout this fellowship. Maybe someday I'll do a series on that. I've looked at a lot of their proof text over the last five years or so. And I've, I've, I've found ways to interpret those passages properly, I think, that gets around their conclusions. I don't come to the same conclusions they come to. And I'll just give you some, I'm not going to tell you what I, what I came to, but I'll tell you some of the proof texts I use. They'll use the example with Jonah and him going <coughs> into Nineveh and saying, God will destroy the city in 40 days. Okay? And then God didn't. They'll say God changed his mind or Jonah's a false prophet. That's one of the things they say. Uh, Hezekiah, adding years to his life. How could God pass, possibly add years to someone's life if he knew this was going to happen in the first place? He couldn't possibly add years to his life. He would have known all along it was going to be this way. Uh, God being sorry for making mankind. Why would God be sorry for something like that? Now, these are some of the issues that they bring up, uh, and there's more too, but those are some of the main ones that they bring up in regards to this issue. And uh, also God just being, you know, it seems like he's surprised in Scripture at times, he's upset in Scripture at times, so these things are brought up, and they bring these things to the forefront, and they say, well, this proves my doctrine. And uh, I think it's kind of hypocritical, personally, if we look at all the you know, you look at passages like, for example, with Adam and Eve. They sinned, God came to the garden, what did he say? What's the first thing he said? Where are you? Did God know where he was? See, the open theists would agree with that. Because we're talking about present knowledge now. But they'll go to other passages talk about future knowledge, and God being surprised, and God asking these questions, and God testing Abraham to see what's in his heart. And they'll say, well, God doesn't know those decisions. So it's kind of hypocritical the way they'll say that the present things, because they don't want to give up omniscience now. They don't give up that characteristic of God. They'll say, well, when it comes to present knowledge, God's just, you know, that's just a, a personification there. He's just showing his, his, his he's trying to relate to humankind. But when it comes to these things talking about future uh, knowledge, he doesn't really know there. 
So, but if you're going to use that hermeneutic with the, the present knowledge, why wouldn't you use it with the future knowledge as well? So to me, it's, it's kind of hypocritical the way they're interpreting things to come to their conclusions. Yeah, I'm not, we're talking about free will decisions now. Prophetic events, according to them, have to do with God forcing something to happen or causing it to happen. If God knows anything about the future in open theism, he causes it to happen. He makes it come to pass. I agree. And they'll say he takes away free will sometimes. Yeah, I used to kind of hold the position a long time ago before I knew anything about the Bible or anything. And as far as I can tell from the guy's book, he envisions all the choices and all the knowledge in the world. God sees like a huge chessboard. There's only so many possibilities. He knows all possibilities for everything that's going to happen. It's almost like he's an amazing uh, statistician, I guess. Mm-hmm. He knows that he can predict every move you're going to make. He can, he can react and, and act Right. Now that might work with something like the denial of Peter. It might work with that. Uh, but you still have to deal with free will here because Peter at any time could have changed his mind and decided to deny him only once, only twice, or maybe five times. You know, so to say you can deny him three times, what you're dealing with here is probability. If God's a great statistician, all he's doing is making a guess. It may be a very calculated guess, but it's a guess, unless he knows the future with certainty. And so when you break it down, that's what it comes down to, in my opinion. That, that would fit more with Satan, I think. He would be more like a statistician. He, would, he, can, he can kind of predict. Yeah, he's been around for a long while. Well. Yeah. What people do, what people do, but he's not on mission. Right. So I would think that that would probably fit more along the lines of Satan and how he works. That statistician can see things and predict possibly what's going to happen. Right. Right. When it comes to these issues like Peter's denial three times, Judas uh, departing from the faith and being filled with Satan. These are all things that Jesus said would happen before they actually happened. So it almost as if open theists become soft core Calvinists now when it comes to these positions because now you basically have to say either God is playing a guessing game, which they don't want to say that. Open theists don't like that, that line of thinking. Or God is basically forcing it to happen. And how could God possibly know these things with certainty? But the scriptures, when he's talking about these things, he's actually proclaiming them as if they're definitely going to happen, which is certainty. So to have certainty, he must know it's going to happen. Now, the, the thing we must, we must get away from here is how does God know the future? I don't know how. The Bible doesn't provide a framework as to how. Augustine provided this framework basically that, he, that God was looking down at a timeline, looking at past, present, and future all at once. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, I don't know how God, some of you might picture that in your head when you're thinking about God's future knowledge of the free will decisions of man. I don't know how it works. But I'm going to hold fast to the scriptures and what it teaches I'm going to believe. I might know all the workings, all the details of it, but I'm going to hold fast to the scriptures. And what it says, I'm going to believe. What it doesn't say, I'm not going to try to figure out necessarily and make a doctrine out of it. I'm going to uh, uh, allow God to work my life and Something I don't know now, then so be it. I don't know it for now. I may never know it until I get into eternity. And even then, God might not reveal it to me. Going back to the, uh, maybe it's just a moral government thing, I don't know, but the common view of the open theist is in public justice, or is that just moral government? Well, open theists typically are moral government theology proponents, but not always. 
Yeah, the public justice thing is a moral government view of the atonement. Yes, that's correct. But typically speaking, people who believe in moral government, you, you see this come from uh, Gordon Olson and um, oh, I had a brain fart for a second. What's that guy's name? From Harry Kahn. Uh, these are the guys, Winky Prattney, these guys are our moral government and they also believe in open theism. So that's typically how it happens and they were a big in YWAM and so it was real big in teaching missionaries this issue because YWAM was like the biggest missionary organization in the world. So. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, proof text has always been the question was Abraham and the son and God saying, now I know. That, that right. implies you don't know something. Right. But I don't know, I can't prove that. Yeah, I think that's more of a personification there that God simply, he's working with us inside of time to relate to us. And uh, I, it really proved to Abraham more than anything, in my opinion, that he was going to follow God. He's willing to give up his only son. doesn't mean that God didn't know ahead of time. Just like God, no one would say that God didn't know where Adam was before he actually answered him. Uh, or that God didn't know what happened. Because what happened when the garden, when Adam sinned, that was, by the time God, got, God got into the garden, that was past tense. It wasn't even present tense. It was past tense. So he, the, he didn't have to have Adam and Eve tell him what happened. He knew what happened. He wanted to get Adam. He probably wanted a confession. He wanted them to, and he was working with them as human beings, as his creation, within their, their realm. That's what I think he's doing there. So. Is that, was that simple enough, brother? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. If you want to study it some more, I mean, I did do a video, Why I'm Not an Open Theist. If you wanted to remind yourself about those three terms, you can go back and watch that video. That would be helpful. And uh, like I said, I can do, maybe do a series in the future about some of the proof texts used for open theism and address them from my point of view, which I think is the Bible's point of view. Okay, was there anything else about uh, Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 or John 6? Everybody saw that Romans 9 was talking about nations. Oh, okay, you didn't do that one, okay. All right. Ephesians 1. We saw that in Ephesians 1, that salvation is what? In, in Christ. But Ephesians 1 never talks about God forcing someone to be in Christ or out of Christ. You decide whether you're going to be in Christ or not, just salvation is in Christ. We saw in Ephesians 1 that it's talking about two groups of people there. The Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? And so you have, to, you have to pay attention to the language there. And Paul, later on in Ephesians, talks about the mystery of the gospel, which is bringing both groups together in one, Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 1 is referring to. There's a lot of plurality there in Ephesians 1, which is talking about two different groups of people there. And Paul's a Jew. He's writing to a church that's primarily a Gentile church. You know, there may be some Jews there. And then John 6, we saw the drawing was not, does not necessitate you coming to salvation. And how does he draw? He draws through teaching, through the preaching of the gospel. And it's all those who learn who come to the Father. It's not all who are drawn come to the Father, but all of those who learn come to the Father. I have a question. Sure. I just heard one of our brothers, Huh. And, and, and I know this is the Calvinist, mm -hmm. but, but he's 
Yeah, in context, we go back to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, that's present active there, shall never hunger. And he who believes in me, that's present active as well, shall never thirst. So these are the people he's talking about here. Those who are continually coming to him and continually believing in him shall never hunger and shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's talking about the people who are in person right there who have seen him with their physical eyes and yet they do not believe. All that the Father gives me, present continuous. So the Father's giving people to him as they come to him. But it's talking about, once again, these people back in verse 35 who are continually coming to him, continue believing him, and shall never hunger, shall never thirst. Those are the only ones that shall never hunger and never thirst. Those who continually come to him and continue to believe in him. So the giving to him is present continuous. It's not something that happened in a million uh, eternity past. They gave all these people to Jesus, and they're guaranteed in salvation. He's giving them to them as they believe, as they come to, to him. And then it says, will come to me. That's future there. So that's talking about when he gives them as the bride to the bridegroom. So, so as, as they come, and as they believe and continue in that, they'll never hunger and never thirst. But they must continue in that to the end. We know that from other scriptures. You must continue in the faith to the end, or you will not be saved. They will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll by no means cast out. The casting out, I mean, if you come to him on, uh, at the end as the bride and the bridegroom, of course he's not going to cast you out. But even if we take that last part of that verse and apply it right now, if you're coming to Christ, he's not going to cast you out. He wants you to come. He wants all to be saved and friend on the parish. That's right. You, the, the, the parting from Christ is your decision to make. He's not, he wants you to keep coming. Even if you sinned, you know, You've backslidden for a period of time. He wants you to come back. You know, so he's not going to kick you out. So I, I think when it comes to this passage, you know, we, people like James White, and he's real big with this passage. A lot of the passages he goes to, he'll go back to the Greek and say what the Greek says. When it comes to this passage, I've never heard him do that before. And I, and I wonder why. And the other verse that I was referring to, and I was just bringing up a second ago, is verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there must be a drawing first. And we know that. We know that God initiates salvation. He draws you first. But that drawing is not a forcing. And see, they'll combine this first part of verse 44, the second part, says, and I will raise him up at the last day. But the ones who he raised up at the last day, not, the one, not everyone has been drawn, but everyone that comes and continues to come, as we saw in, up in verse 35. Those are the ones who were raised up at the last day. And then verse 45 tells us how we're drawn. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. That's all. We're all taught by God. That's how the drawing is done. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the, the word of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard. So you're taught, you're heard. That's, you're for, that's forced upon you. I remember back when I was in high school. I heard what the teacher was saying, but I wasn't learning. I was forced to be in that classroom, but I didn't care what he had to say. I was a horrible student. So I was taught by him. But I didn't learn. So everyone that has taught, has heard, and learned from the Father comes to me. So if you're learning from the Father, then you come to him. But learning implies you're doing something about the information you're receiving that you're being taught. And that's why you come. 
And you know, the, the, the Calvinistic interpretation of John 6 is not fit with John 12, 32, where Jesus says, and this, this is used improperly at times, but verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And the word peoples there, of course, not in the, if you look at this in your New King James, in italic, so it's not in the original, it just says all to myself. Um, they'll say that this is talking about all different kinds of people. But I would draw all to myself. So after Christ has been lifted up on the cross, since the cross, he's drawing all people to himself. So he wants all to be saved. He commands all to repent. He's uh, John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we combine these passages, and I think we come with a, with a right understanding of what John 6 is saying. We can't just take John 6, 35 through 40, or John 30, 6, 37 through 44, and remove it from the rest of the Bible and say, this is what the Bible teaches about salvation. That's what they do. But I think even in the context of John 6, it doesn't fit right. So if you were to use this, this section to preach mm -hmm. in the open air, yeah. how would you apply it you're hearing the Word of God. You're being taught the Word of God. Are you learning? Are you applying? Are you submitting? You must come. You must believe. You must continue to come. You must continue to believe. Otherwise, you won't be saved in the end. And in the end, if you do that, in the Father, you Yes. Yes, you can be the Son. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really three groups of people he's talking about. He's talking about the people who are right there in person. He's talking about people who will, who, the disciples as well. People who will believe over time in the future. Those are the three groups he's addressing. People who are seeing him right then who are not believing. The disciples who are believing who see him right then. And then those in the future who will believe in him but they don't see him with their physical eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And um, it, what, it, what it comes down to, though, brother, I think, is that people are following teachers instead of looking into it for themselves. This is, this is one of the most, this in Romans 9, or in Ephesians 1, are the three most popular passages used for Calvinists to promote their views. And for me, when I first heard it, it just didn't reside with my, with my spirit. I, didn't, I was like, no, this isn't, that doesn't sound like the God I know. But I didn't, want to, I didn't want to interpret the scripture in light of my experience, so I, I wanted to look at it for myself. And, when I, and that's what I think every Christian should be doing, is being a Berean. Just because some guy with a PhD, who debates all the time, tells you that it says what it says, doesn't mean that he's right about it. Uh, I'm not saying James White is intentionally deceiving, but it is possible. Uh, or any of the other preachers who teach Calvinism, but I, I don't think it says what they're saying it says. By any means. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, there any, anything else? How about any questions from last week, the preacher rapture? Anything else you want to bring up from last week? I know we had a question and answer session last week too, but and for those who weren't here for that, there, there's a video actually online, not of me teaching here, but of me teaching on that view. <coughs> All right, well, if not, we'll just move to Matthew 12. Go back to Matthew now. And uh, I went back just a little bit this morning and reviewed my last teaching on Matthew, and it was done, like, I think on Resurrection Sunday. That was quite some time ago.
Uh, and then we taught on lead, church leadership since then. I've taught on head covering since then. And then we, I was gone for a month, but it's just been a while since so we went to Matthew. So let's go to Matthew 12. And I'm not going to review the last time I we went through Matthew because I don't really remember most of it, to be honest with you. It was a long time ago. And uh, but you can review your notes on your own time about that. And we're going to read Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. All right, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the law and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known that what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Now when they had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? They said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, if it is, is, it, therefore if, if it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. They were, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Okay, so what we have here, Jesus dealing with again, is people who were supposedly dealing with the letter of the law, which they're really not, and Jesus dealing with the spirit behind the law, which is what? What's the spirit behind the law? Love. The spirit behind the law is love. Okay, so let's look what happened here. They, they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and disciples were hungry. And the word behind hungry there means to desire strongly. doesn't mean that they just, it was breakfast time and they decided to eat. It meant they probably hadn't ate for a couple of days. Okay, they were hungry. And we'll see why that matters here in a second and why Jesus used one of the first examples he used. They began to pluck heads of grain on the, and to eat. Now, in the Old Testament law, it was not against the law uh, to eat your neighbor's grains or eat from their vineyard if you were hungry. You couldn't take a bucket or a container along with you to fill it up and take it home. But if you're really hungry and you're passing by their grain fields or by their, their vineyard where their grapes are growing, you could eat some of it and it'd be okay. It wouldn't be stealing. And if you want to see where it says that, it says that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 through 25. It seemed like you would think if that, if that law wasn't there, they would have tried to accuse him of stealing instead. Uh, but there is a law that covers this in the law of Moses. And then the Pharisees say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But the question is, does it say anywhere in the law that you can't pluck heads of grain or can't eat grapes on the Sabbath? The answer is no. Let me tell you some things that are prohibited on the Sabbath. You're prohibited to work on the Sabbath. And if you want some references for that, you find that in Exodus 31.15 and also in Exodus 34.21 and 
You couldn't work on the Sabbath. Even during harvest, you could not work on the Sabbath. Okay? Uh, you couldn't buy or sell on the Sabbath, according to the law of Moses. You find this in Nehemiah 10.31. And, of course, you couldn't do any evil on the Sabbath. That should be at all times. Okay? And we'll see who was really doing the evil on this, in this situation at the end. Uh, was it really the disciples and Jesus who were doing evil, or was it the Pharisees who were doing evil at this point in time? Uh, and, what we see, uh, and what we'll see here, as we read through, we'll see what is allowed on the Sabbath. You're allowed to relieve hunger on the Sabbath. If you're going past your neighbor's grain field, or your neighbor's vineyard, you're allowed to relieve your hunger on the Sabbath. And what the Pharisees were doing here, they were accusing disciples of working. Because they plucked that grain of hand, uh, of, uh, of a head of grain. They accused them of working. And see, they're so concerned with the letter of the law that they're, they're just looking for to accuse someone of something. The law doesn't explicitly say, this is wrong. And there's a lesson we can learn from this. That when the Bible doesn't explicitly say, so, this is wrong, that we're not, not to go about accusing people, this is wrong. Okay? And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. The, the, the law of Moses explicitly says not to work on the Sabbath. But obviously, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, did not define what his disciples were doing as working. Okay? Oh, we see it right here, and what we're about to go through is going to talk about that. What David went through. He, he relieved hunger. Okay? Uh, we see in John chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, you're allowed to carry your mat or your bed on the Sabbath. Because Jesus healed that man who was lame. And he told him, pick up your mat and walk. Put his mat, was walking along. You know, this guy had been lame for 38 years. And all of a sudden, these Pharisees say, um, what are you doing carrying your mat? What, what, what are you doing, man? He said, well, the, the guy, you haven't ever healed me before. You've never healed anyone. The guy who healed me, who I know is from God because he healed me, just told me to carry my mat and walk. So we know we can carry, you can carry your mat or your bed and, and, and on the Sabbath and walk. Uh, we know, according to the pastor we're about to look at, that priestly work in the temple can be done on the Sabbath. Even though it's work, priestly work can be done in the temple on the Sabbath. Uh, we know from what we're about to read on healing on the Sabbath, verses 9 through 14, that saving or restoring life is allowed on the Sabbath. That's allowed on the Sabbath. And lastly, of course, you can do good works and worship God on the Sabbath. That's according to the law of Moses. Okay, so let's, let's see the example Jesus, give, Jesus gives here uh, to, to prove that what his disciples did was okay. So he's talking about David here. And you see this example of David, which is talked about in verses 3 and 4. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. You see that uh, this situation Jesus talked about in verse 3 and 4. David was hungry. He had not eaten for a long time. He was being chased by King Saul from cave to cave. And he came into the temple and ate the showbread, which only the priests were supposed to eat. And Jesus said that he was blameless in doing so. So, once again, the law of love here comes into play. That God loves David and doesn't want him to suffer or starve, therefore David's allowed to eat 
the bread that's only made for the priests. First Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. You'll see the, the original telling of this situation. And then in verse 5 and 6, Jesus is talking about the priest who, when he says profane the Sabbath, it means they're working on the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath. And yet they are blameless. So temple work is okay on the Sabbath. And then in verse 6 it says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. So if temple work is okay on the Sabbath, then one who is greater than the Sabbath can make decisions on what can be done on the Sabbath and what cannot be done on the Sabbath. I mean, who are they really trying to correct here? The Lord of the Sabbath. The one who created the Sabbath. They're trying to correct him. It's like coming to the people who authored the Constitution saying, no, that's not what you really meant there. This is what you meant. Um, wait a minute. Didn't I write it? Why, why are you trying to correct me here? You don't come to the lawmaker and try to correct them and tell them what they really meant that was supposed to be lawful and what was supposed to be lawful on the Sabbath. Okay? That's what they're doing. They're trying to correct him. So who is, who is really doing what is unlawful here in this passage? Is it Jesus and the disciples? Or is it the Pharisees? Yeah. They're trying to say they're, that they're doing wrong on something that's not written in the law, and they're trying to correct the Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, they probably didn't believe he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in verse 7 he says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have not condemned the guiltless. And that saying, we looked at that saying a while back, just said it earlier in Matthew, I think in Matthew 9, 13, and that's a quote from Hosea 6, 6. And in that quote, Jesus is, God is coming against the Israelites because they're, they're bringing their sacrifices, but are they living holy? What good is your sacrifice if you're not living holy? What good is your holding to the letter of the law that you think is the letter of the law without having compassion or love? which is the whole intention of the law in the first place, is to bring you to a point where you love. You love God and you love your neighbor. That's the point of the law. And so they were missing the boat. And of course we know that the, the Sabbath will be done away with in the New Testament, and um, we probably won't get that to today. There's quite a bit on that. So even the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And they, and they were condemning the guiltless here. And who's the guiltless? The disciples. You know, as open-air preachers who go out into all the world and preach the gospel, we're zealous about evangelism, about the lost, we're hard on sin, we love holiness, we want the world to be saved. Um, we don't need to let people get away with sin. If people are in sin, we need to call them out on it and call them to repentance. But at the same token, we be very, very careful that we don't condemn the guiltless ourselves keep a tight ring on our tongue. If someone says something and you think they might mean this, ask them for clarification. Is this what you mean by this or do you mean this by this? Don't make assumptions about what they're saying. And um, obviously we want to call people out of their sin and call them to repentance, but we should never make assumptions that someone's in a certain sin so that we don't condemn them. Because God's, God's against that too. He's against us condemning the guiltless. So we need to be careful. Uh, about these issues. Now, when he had departed from there, 
he went into the synagogue. Now, this is probably not long after this. So Jesus is trying to teach these people a lesson. The Lord of the Sabbath is trying to teach them a lesson. The question is, are they going to get it? This is a good example of John 6 right here. Because they're being taught the scriptures. But the question is, are they learning? Let's see. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, this is the, the Pharisees, the people in the, temple, in the synagogue, are asking him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Now, it doesn't say this, but my guess would be they brought this man into the synagogue just to set this up. That's the kind of people where he's dealing with here. That they might accuse him. They're looking to accuse. They still didn't learn what Jesus said in Matthew 7, uh, 12, 7. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You, they condemned the guiltless before. Now they're going to try to do it again. You know, Jesus, he was guiltless all his life. He never was guilty of anything wrong. Then he said to them, what man is there? And, and listen, look how Jesus answers here. He doesn't answer by directly answering it. He answers with what? A question. That's a good way to answer questions sometimes, with a question. Jesus did an awful lot. What man is there among you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And of course, none of them are going to say, well, I wouldn't do that. They would never say that. And Jesus says, well, if, if you'll do that for a sheep, why won't you do it for human beings? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's one of the things I said a second ago, that you are allowed to do on the Sabbath, is to do good. They said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored as whole as the other. And he, this is the second lesson he's given on this particular thing, just in this one chapter. And let's see how they respond this time. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. There's no better, clearer, more concise way to learn than to learn from Jesus himself. They were being taught, as John 6.45 says, but they were not learning. Therefore, they were not coming. They didn't come to Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. As John 6.35 says, they decided to reject him again. And he's, having, he's being pretty compassionate. I mean, he could have been a lot harder on them. He's being pretty compassionate with them. And they reject him again. And what do they do? They want to destroy him. That's typically how it works. When someone brings a truth to someone else, if they don't want to submit it, that's typically the response you get. One of violence, one of hatred, one of dislike, not wanting to hear what this person says anymore. And the best way to get a person out of the way who's going to keep on teaching the same thing is to kill him, destroy him. So who was the, who was the Sabbath made for? What does the scripture say about that? Who, who was the Sabbath made for? Was it made for God or for man? Oh, yeah. It was made for man. So when we see in Genesis 2-2, it says that God rested. Did it mean that God was like, oh, man, whew, need a little break here. I've been working hard. Is that what it means when it says God rested? He's about to run out of omnipower. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the word rest there is, is the actually Hebrew word that would be transliterated as Sabbath. Okay, and it means this, literally, to cease, to desist, to bring to an end. That doesn't mean God's saying, man, you know, six days of creating the whole world and the whole universe, I'm tired. No, he's just saying he ceased from doing it. He desisted from creation, from creating things. And he gave it, not for himself, but for man, for man. So that man would see that as a pattern uh, for how he should... Uh, do things on the Sabbath. 
Okay, well, I think we're going to stop there. And uh, maybe next week I'll talk about the Sabbath and why it doesn't apply to us today. That command, that's, there's quite a bit left. I could probably go on for about 40, 30, 45 minutes. So we'll stop there, and we'll, we'll do that next week, um, about why the Sabbath doesn't apply to us today as a Christian. And if you if you run the Seventh-day Adventist like I have, they're pretty hardcore about these things. And there's even Christians today who want to go back to the Old Testament law and, and be like the Jews, and they have the freedom to do that they want to. Um, but we're not required to do so. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. Okay, so does anyone have any questions about this passage, about how God is trying to show the law of love again? And uh, the Pharisees were making a rule that wasn't there. Of course, you can't work on the Sabbath, but Jesus was not interpreting them as working on the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. So if there's a gray area there, what side should we err on, the side of judgment or the side of mercy? Yes. If we're in a gray area here, well, that kind of looks like sin. I'm not sure if it's sin. We need to err on the side of mercy. And if we don't, we might end up condemning the guiltless, like the Pharisees were here with the disciples. And uh, ourselves being condemned by being in sin ourselves, by condemning the guiltless. Yeah, so it would bring us into sin by condemning the guiltless. And uh, also, I brought this with me, but next week we'll get into what the early church taught on the Sabbath and what they believe concerning that. Because so, some Seventh-day Adventists, etc., try to say that, you know, the early church, they, they worship on the Sabbath too. And we'll see next week if that's true or not. So. All right, any questions about this week? Objections or things to add? Please feel free to. I read a question from her actually a long time ago. She might have mentioned it because he actually uses the exact copy on uh, Somebody at her work, when she used to work at uh, Charlie's, they would take food off the front line. He was trying to be a Christian, and he said he was lawful to be able to take food because he was hungry off of the food line because of this passage saying, you know, I'm hungry and I Yeah, he's definitely misapplying there. Seemed like more of a justification than anything. He's not getting it from the passage. He's trying to. Well, he he's not bringing the food to himself. He's bringing it to everybody else. Yeah. So if he was bringing the food to himself and he was really really hungry, I mean, this is and once again, this is talking about the law of Moses. So we're not we're not under that anyway. We'll get to that more next week. But uh, if he was a Jew in that time and tried to pull that trick, he wouldn't he wouldn't even fool Jesus. I mean, Jesus would call him out on it. <laughs> Right, right. But this isn't considered stealing, according to the law. Right. Oh, he was stealing. I thought you were saying he was bringing the food to the customers, but he was taking food from there and, and eating it for himself. No, see, we're not in a Jewish nation. We're not under Jewish law. If we're under Jewish law in Chile's or whatever, where were you working again? Oh, Charlie's, I'm sorry. If Oh, Charlie's was under that kind of law, then they might be, I don't know. But even that, we're talking about picking grains, heads of grain from the actual grain. Yeah, yeah. Not once it's been through food and they prepared it and put money into it. Uh, and is it, is it uh, in the law of Moses uh, specifically what we saw with David, the bread? Okay. Does it specifically say what is permitted? Because I know it talks about the gleaning of the field. Right. You know, that, that 
That's on the seventh year. Or, or that's a, that's a, yeah, that's for the poor, right? There was different, you know, right. different things that were that people were allowed to do. Right. Now, as far as this is concerned, does it say what is specific? With the showbread? I mean, no. Does it say grain that you can do that with the grain, or does it say with grain and with the vineyard? Here, I'll give you the scripture reference. Um, oh, that's that's something different. Um, Deuteronomy twenty-three, verses twenty-four through twenty-five, talks about the vineyard and the grain field. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> there you go. You got him again. Yeah, your friend. Right. 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 But he's getting it from the field, and uh, the gleaning from the field was like if you if something fell off, you can the poor from glean from that. And every seventh year, they they weren't to do anything on that field and let the poor use it. So that that was those are laws put in place for the poor. Right. Right, but now with the showbread, where David was eating the showbread here, the consecrated bread, uh, there was no, that, that I know of, I, I, I might not know the Old Testament as well as I should, but there's nothing that I know of in the Old Testament that says there's an exception for it. But, we, but Jesus is going back to the law of love here. David was basically really hungry, just like the disciples were here, really hungry, and, he, and God wanted him to eat. He didn't want him to starve. So that proves the law of love. Right yes. Now, because it doesn't specifically say Right. But that that law in Deuteronomy twenty three, twenty four through twenty five, that gives us the law of love too. That's a principle of the law of love. I mean that's not that's not their possession. That grain field's not theirs, that vineyard is not theirs, and God says the law of love. If your neighbor is hungry and he's walking through your pasture, he can't fill, can't take a bucket and fill it up, you know, but he can pick some hay and, and, and fill himself up. So he's not hungry anymore. This would show that this Deuteronomy 23 would be more like a principle, may not justify to the grain. Right. right. Yeah, now the Pharisees, of course, they're done with the letter of the law. Right, just the they, they, they just want to deal with just the letter here. And we need to be careful about that. There needs to be a law of love here in regards to these things. So patience, mercy, above sacrifice. And the sacrifice has to do with the letter of the law. Because they were in Hosea, they were following the letter. This sacrifice at this time, this sacrifice at this time. You know, doing, found all the, the specifics of it, but God says you're not living holy. You're not loving each other. You're not being merciful and compassionate to each other. So what, your sacrifice means nothing to me. So, and if we're not living a loving life, then our, our sacrifice to God, our praise and worship to Him, our reading the Bible and whatever else we're doing, if we're not living it out, it doesn't really mean much. That's kind of good on family thing. You could apply that, you know, you could be doing what you're supposed to be doing because you're not doing it halfway to be doing You're not right. really doing it at the same time. You're not really enjoying doing it. Right. Right. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Might as well just keep it. You're not going to get a blessing from it. Yeah.